our main use is more, I think, in the population at the moment and the ability to use algorithms to see what symptoms people have in the first week predicts who's likely as an individual to need help, who's likely um, to need hospitalization uh, and who's likely to get long COVID. Hello and welcome to the latest Investec Focus Talk, a series of candid discussions with leaders, innovators and change makers. I'm Max Richardson, Senior Investment Director at Investec in London, and I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Spector, genetic epidemiologist, author and most recently the driving force behind the Zoe COVID symptom study, arguably the most comprehensive and reliable data set on COVID-19 in the UK and one of the largest public health studies in the world, with nearly four and a half million participants. Tim, welcome. Hello there. So much really interesting ground to cover today. Um, But before we start, we'd like to hear a bit more about you. Uh, We've known each other for many years because you trained at the same medical school as my parents. Um, I think I'm right in saying that we're both retired windsurfers and ski tourers, a subject I want to come on to a bit later. but I thought it'd be great for our audience to hear about your background and journey to this point, uh, where you find yourself the lead of one of the largest public health studies ever undertaken. Yeah, well, that journey could take us uh, several hours, but I'll try and cut it short um, to say that I was looking forward to a nice, uh, quiet summer um, when COVID uh, basically closed down my twin research unit, which is what I've been doing for the last 25 years. Um, so. Uh, I've dabbled as a consultant in medicine and rheumatology. I always liked epidemiology and then got into studying twins in a big way. Uh, and that's really where I went, made my mark. Um, and so we have these 14,000 twins that we've been looking at for the last um, 25 years. And basically we were told in, uh, in about mid-March that everything was going to close down and we'd have to stop all our studies. And we'd been doing these studies on um, uh, personalized nutrition in the twins, working with this company, uh, this biotech data company called um, Zoe, who were just around the corner from us in London. And uh, it all seemed gloom and doom. And I just said, okay, well, I'll go and write some more books uh, over summer. And unfortunately, on the, on the cycle home, I got the idea of actually doing something in the twins that would um, link it all with COVID. So we'd find out in real time were they getting infected or were they being protected? Was it their genes or their upbringing that was important? And so I phoned up the, um, the CEO of Zoe, Jonathan Wolf, and immediately he said, that sounds fascinating. You know, we'll, we'll stop everything we're doing and, and try and repurpose our nutrition app for COVID. And that's, and four days later, amazingly, they, they'd come up with this app and, in a way, the rest is history. We had a million downloads in 24 hours and uh, two million in two weeks and uh, now over nearly four and a half million. And we're also in the US and in Sweden. So, uh, and my life has never been busier. So I never got to um, to have much holiday uh, over the summer. Um, so part of me regrets that, but it also, you know, I think we've done some amazing good. So the whole team, feels quite proud of everything we've done so far. And so you should. And I should congratulate you, of course, for your um, OBE, which you received um, a couple of weeks ago or so ago. 
for this work. Um, a couple of things to, to touch on there. First of all, um, your books. I mean, I want to talk about your latest book, uh, Spoon Fed, a bit later on, because actually there's an angle here which is very relevant to this, this conversation. But since we're talking about the app, perhaps you could just highlight um, very briefly the difference between the COVID symptom study app and the NHS app. Well, we got ours out about five months faster than they did. That was the, uh, the one important difference I think we're quite proud of. Um, the other is that there is, isn't a research tool. It's purely to uh, track and trace. And so uh, their idea, it's all linked with Bluetooth technology and you switch it on and it will record uh, who you're coming into contact with, your locations, and through various algorithms, try and pinpoint um, whether you need to isolate and have a test or not. That's really all it does. Um, whereas ours is much more multi-purpose. Uh, it doesn't track anybody. So the closest we get is your postcode if you want to put it all, all in. Um, everything else is voluntary and self-reported. And ours is much more of an interactive tool. So the government still only asks about three symptoms um, for, of COVID, whereas we ask uh, about 25. And we know that they're all important at different ages and are also key to sorting out your um, risk profiles. So that they're very, very different animals. And every day we tell people what's happening in their area. We're giving them trend charts um, uh, to see whether levels are going up or down. Um, we give them uh, questionnaires about diet or blood group or uh, risk factors of disease, whatever, whatever's you know scientifically um, on the top of the agenda. And it's it's a fast moving, uh, fun piece of work. And the amazing thing is, we've still got so many million people after six months who are still using it most days. And so uh, I think it, it, it's quite revolutionary in how people are interacting feeling comfortable giving their medical and personal information to a company uh, in return for information back. And this is perhaps, you know, the, the, the future of health in some way. I mean, it's hard to overstate the power of the data set that you're building. And with that data, um, you were the first to identify things like the fact that loss of smell is a, is a, a, a symptom in many cases of, of patients with COVID. Um, the children present differently to adults. The delirium is a key sign in, in older patients. And then on a sort of hotspot basis, you were, you were able to identify that Leicester was a, a, a potential hotspot before the government was. Um, does, how does it differ in terms of the output to the government's published data? Because what we're talking about here is, is predicted outcomes rather than um, backward-looking published uh, data such as the ONS is reporting? Yeah, so that one of the features of the app is to uh, provide data on incidence, number of new cases per day, and also prevalence rates. So how many people um, we think are, you know, currently symptomatic uh, are in the country at the moment. And we provide daily updates on that. And what we've, we've done, we started off back in March, um, there were no testing. So uh, only a tiny fraction of people actually had any tests. So we used an algorithm to predict um, who was uh, affected or not. And 
we published that algorithm, and it's about 80% accurate. Um, and certain bits of it, like loss of smell, are, are virtually the same as having a PCR test. They're so good. So you don't necessarily need a test, which isn't itself um, perfect either. But our, our data now are based on um, a subsample of the population that we, we send invitations to every day to get a swab test. So these are anyone who's symptomatic on the app will automatically uh, get an invitation by email saying, uh, go to a test center, uh, use this code, uh, or get a test kit sent to you. And those people then report back to us uh, a couple of days later, whether they're positive or negative. And then we extrapolate to the population by looking at the age and um, geographical stratas. And that allows us to get what seems to be a pretty accurate estimate um, of the real number of cases. So if, for the latest data, there's nothing can beat ours at the moment. Although the government, because they're spending 12 billion pounds on this system, uh, is clearly has more resources than we do. Um, uh, ours costs about 2 million. Um, it um, uh, is going to eventually perhaps overwhelm ours for size. Um, but what it doesn't do is have a systematic way of doing it, and it doesn't uh, report fast. So that's where I think we have the edge. And feeding back the information to, to individuals uh, is also the other area where we're ahead of the game. So part, I mean, presumably part of the edge is, as well as the, um, the AI and machine learning that you use to build the algorithms, because it strikes me as being enormously powerful if you can predict either individual risk or areas um, that are likely to see most patients, because that has an impact then on the allocation of scarce resources. Yeah, so, I mean, we were at our most useful, I think, early in the epidemic when we picked up areas like um, South Wales and uh, Liverpool uh, and, to a lesser extent, Cheltenham. Um, and uh, alerted those authorities to it when there was basically no, it, they had to wait for hospital activity before they knew there was something going on because it, there was no other way of uh, tracking the pandemic. Now, I think there's many, many routes of predicting hospital cases and the government, you know, are using the number of tests for people over 60. So I think... Um, our main use is more, I think, in the population at the moment and the ability to use algorithms to see what symptoms people have in the first week predicts who's likely, as an individual, to need help, who's likely um, to need hospitalisation uh, and who's likely to get long COVID. So I think, you know, we're constantly looking at where, where our uh, strengths and weaknesses are and I think that's these algorithms and using AI in the first week, uh, either to triage for people for you know hospital services or uh, intervention trials, uh, that that's probably where we are as well as helping with the vaccines. We talk about immunity because there's there's some distinctions to be made, I think, when it comes to immunity between uh, antibody immunity, memory T cell immunity. There's a lot of discussion and debate as to what the threshold for herd immunity might be with COVID-19. And of course, we're seeing very, very low reinfection rates. So when you, when you get an infection like uh, COVID, 
uh, your body reacts in two ways with what's called the innate system, which is something we're all born with uh, and is very often quite genetic and allows us to have these T cells, which already can pick up the virus and isolate it and stop it spreading. And the other form of immunity, which is uh, a mem involves memory cells and producing antibodies that takes a bit longer, uh, but then can produce maybe longer lasting immunity. And what's clear is that you're getting both sorts in this, in this infection. So you're getting both sorts of the uh, infection uh, of, of this immune response. And you can't at the moment measure T cell response well in the population. So we're guessing what's happening in the population. They've done it on a few people. It's extremely expensive. Um, whereas you can measure antibodies in millions of people. Um, and we know that most people produce antibodies who have a severe infection, but it disappears in half of them by about uh, three months. And we don't know how long they last particularly. So there could be several ways you're, you're resistant to the virus, both T cells and B cells. And that is complicates the whole thing. It complicates vaccines. And, uh, but it could be the reason that a lot of people have been exposed to the virus, uh, don't get ill. It's not because they already had um, these B cell antibodies, but actually they um, had a really tough innate T cell system. And even if their partner was coughing all over them, like my wife, uh, when I had it, uh, she didn't get ill. And so there's many cases like that. So I think we've got to really, we can't guess what's going to happen based on the immunology. Uh, we've got to wait and see what the, the data show. So far, you know, from our several million users, we've had only a handful of reports of reinfection. Uh, and they can't be validated because you don't know um, that they didn't just have a relapse of some kind of long COVID at the moment until you did genetic testing. So, but I, I'm relatively confident that, there, you know, it is like what the risk is really, really small at the moment um, within six months. And I think that that should reassure people. And if that's true, that's going to have a very different type of um, implication for how long it lasts and whether places like London that were affected very badly in the first wave are going to do better in the second wave if they've got, you know, something at least like 40% of the population uh, resistant to it. So the, the drawback of all statistical studies is that the sample isn't necessarily representative of the population. Um, now, you clearly have a, a very large sample, four and a half million people, uh, but it'd be interesting to know how many of those people are updating on a daily basis as opposed to people like me who updated when I felt ill, but then stopped updating. So can you give us some comfort that the people who use the app are representative of the population at large? Or could there be a skew to some degree in, in the data because it's mainly people who feel ill that are using it? Well, to answer the first question, we have about one and a half million people who uh, fill it in on most days and they look at their results. And uh, people like you who 
you know, stopped filling it in. We're trying to get you back so we can see if you get a relapse and uh, we can look at that. And we're adding features about your local area to make you interested to look in anyway, just to get facts about the, uh, uh, about the pandemic you can't get anywhere else. We think it's representative of uh, working age people um, who own a, a smartphone. And uh, then, but obviously we're not getting as many ethnic minorities. We're not getting deprived neighborhoods. We're getting less people aged over 80 who can't use a smartphone. Um, number of things like this, uh, inevitably we get some bias. We perhaps get some bias in personality of people who can never be bothered to fill in any form at all. Um, but largely what's nice is our, our data do mirror what's happening with the systematic ONS survey where they pay people uh, to have swabs stuck up their nose um, every week. And so that, that's reassuring, I think, for us. So we've not found major differences for most of the things we're looking at. Uh, but we've got to bear in mind that all surveys have this, this bias. Uh, you know, unless you work in a dictatorship, you can't force people to uh, uh, give you their data. I think that you mentioned long COVID earlier on, which is something I want to come back to because there's a there's a there's a big debate going on at the moment, and the the Economist ran an article on this um, between um, the the those on the side of the so-called Great Barrington Declaration, um, who believe that we should let the virus run free among the younger population and protect the more vulnerable. And those on the so-called side of the John Snow memorandum who think that's a very bad idea because it still means, even if in percentage terms, the number of people that um, contract COVID and die is small, in absolute terms, there are still many, many people. Um, one of the things that's perhaps missing from that debate and is relevant to the outcome of your research, I think, is that even among young people, the, the phenomenon known as long COVID is... Um, something that should be borne in mind. Yeah, so because we have this unique uh, prospective cohort that people, in a way, enter the data not knowing what's going to become of them, uh, we get a, a fairly unbiased look at the, the length of symptoms and what happens. And so from that, we found out that about 13% of people are still reporting the same symptoms uh, at one month and about 5% at two months and about two and a half percent at three months. So if you, depending on where you think it's, you know, the cutoff is and that hasn't been defined yet, but to my mind, three months is a long time to be off work. It's a long time to have fatigue and brain fog, uh, plus potential other neurological problems and loss of smell and taste and feeling terrible. I think that's when you start getting a real burden on society. And if you think about that, uh, you know, one in 45 people with that problem, that goes across all ages. Um, it is twice as common in, in a 60-year-old as in a 30-year-old. So it may be in a 30-year-old, it's only one in 100. But that's still a lot of people when you think that there are millions of people who are getting this virus. So there could we well be hundreds of thousands of people who do have at least three months of illness. And potentially, we don't know, it could be uh, several years in a in a minority of those, so that's the that's the restraining 
thing on, let's say, let it rip amongst uh, young people. I should say that under 18s, there's very little, doesn't seem to be very much risk at all, but it's that uh, younger, uh, you know, the age group, including yourself, Max, that, um, you know, would still, will still suffer. You're not going to die, but you might have longer term symptoms. Uh, and these are people that are crucial for the economy because they're, you know, paying taxes, et cetera. So that has to be balanced against um, the downside, which is that by locking down people, you're going to get more mental illness, more depression, more cancers, more heart disease. And at the moment, uh, my view on the Great Barrington debate is that, yes, more people are going to die through the restrictions than uh, will be saved uh, from them it, than if we took something like the Swedish model where we just acted responsibly without having major lockdowns. You know, we still maintained the masks, the, the distancing, um, washing our hands and avoiding large groups. Uh, that would mitigate a lot of the, uh, the deaths. So it's a debate that no one really knows the answer to, but I think it is important to have it because um, but it, the Great Barrington movement only works if we are going to be immune to this for uh, several years, not just several months. And that's, that's at the moment a bit of a gamble. And so... You know, that's probably why a lot of most countries are, are treading somewhere between the two um, and, and, and until it becomes clearer. And I think we've got to look at the whole picture plus the economy when we, we talk about this. And the problem is we just don't have enough hard data. Uh, and so both groups uh, are somewhat guessing and it's coming down to often to politics rather than to, uh, to science on that. Yeah, I mean, it's refreshing to hear you discuss the economy, because I think one of the observations that people in the financial community have had is that um, it's quite rare to find um, people in science who who think about the economy or at least allow it to inform part of their sort of decision-making process. Um, just talking about the countries, and I promised that we wouldn't get... Um, political when 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 we were talking before what can we learn or what have we learned from other countries where where have the outcomes been perhaps less bad rather than better and and what it what what could we what could our government learn from those countries well it's still evolving so i mean the caveat here is that the countries we thought were doing really well uh, are now doing some of them are doing really badly so everyone was looking at israel early on as a model country that locked down early, um, you know, saved their economy and health system. And now they're doing, you know, one of the worst in, in, the, in, the, in that area of the world because they let the economy go back too quickly and they're suffering now. Um, we've got countries like Austria that were doing, and Switzerland that were doing well and now doing badly. Um, so I'm not sure... Anyone's really got it right. We seem to be doing much the same as France and, and uh, Spain and Italy, uh, our sort of near neighbours. And even Germany now, who are seen as the absolute model state. And they definitely were in the first, the first wave. You know, nearly everything Germany did, we did the opposite and we, we screwed up. Um, so 
our centralized model of doing everything was complete rubbish. Um, you know, we had this rigid governmental idea, you know, which uh, I think uh, I heard call as NIH syndrome, you know, not invented here. Um, we didn't want anything foreign and we didn't want companies helping because they were just wait, getting in the way. They didn't want local people to help. Local hospitals could have had testing up and running within a couple of weeks. They were told, like my hospital, not to bother. You'll just get in the way of these massive things that are going to succeed. So this mentality was wrong at the beginning. Um, I think still partly wrong. Um, these massive centralized projects like Track and Trace would be much better done at a local regional level. And that's what places like Germany that have more of a federalized system uh, do seem to do better. And anyone else who uh, tried to say anything different was seen as like a traitor uh, rather than trying to help. And especially industry, you know, there was so much red tape starting small companies helping uh, that I knew personally. You know, we had a, we had a, te a company we worked with had a, a 20 minute test for PCR and we, we, we wrote a paper on this in April, but you know, it took four months of uh, paperwork and bureaucracy slowing it down uh, and they could have, could have been out there. And there's many other examples like that because it wasn't a government uh, tool. But anyway, we'll, we'll see. It's, I think it's still too early to draw all the lessons. We're still learning them. So my view is let's keep an open mind. I don't think anyone really knows what's going on here, if we're honest. Um, and, you know, not have rigid views. And uh, that's, I think that's, and collect as much data as we can. I think that one of the great fears was that, particularly in the developing world, uh, that that COVID would would spread very very quickly, and that because perhaps of the um, less developed healthcare infrastructure in many of the countries concerned, that that the death rates would be higher. And actually, I don't think those greatest fears have necessarily come to fruition uh, yet. And do you have any insight as to why that why that might be? Well, epidemiologists were generally fearing, you know. Uh, millions and millions of deaths in across Asia, Latin America, and Africa, in, in the poorest parts of the world, with uh, poor hygiene and uh, poor um, health services. And the opposite has happened. So uh, there have been some studies, for example, in uh, favelas in uh, Brazil, finding that about uh, eighty percent of people have been infected. And yet hardly any of them uh, had any major symptoms or went to hospital or suffered in any way. So, and when you look at the, the rates going across India, when you consider the, the, the sheer scale of the country, um, you should have seen uh, 100 times more deaths than they were actually getting. And a similar picture across Africa, uh, when we were discussing this with the WHO, um, you know, and the countries were couldn't quite work out why they weren't getting the deaths. People thought they were just hiding them, but it turns out not to be true. So affluent areas of the world are actually suffering much more than the poorer ones. And I think my explanation for this is that the immune systems of those, uh, of those people are very much more attuned 
to fighting off viruses every single day of their lives than our puny ones uh, in the in the West, if you like, uh, where we ha- we're over sanitized, we use antibiotics too much, um, and our our immunity is is really pretty poor. Uh, and this is reflected also in our gut microbes. So um, in general, uh, areas in Africa and India, um, they will have perhaps half, double the number of species of gut microbes that we have, which with be- gives them better immunity. So um, let's move on to nutrition, because I think this is one of the really kind of interesting, um, an area that you can clearly give us a lot of insight into. And I said at the beginning of the conversation that I'd come back to skiing. And so I wondered if you might just give us um, uh, an insight as to how you started to think about and do research into nutrition, dietary patterns, and particularly gut health um, in relation to our immune systems. Well, the... As- as in all books, they all start with some pivotal life event. Um, and uh, mine actually existed rather than being made up. But um, it, uh, I suppose everyone says that. But it was about 10 years ago and I was doing some ski touring uh, in, uh, in the Italian side of the Alps. And it had been quite high, about 3,000 metres. And we just, it was the last day, climbed up, felt very unwell. And... Um, I, I, kept, I was falling over and falling to one side and on the way down, which was uh, not very usual. And I got to the bottom and I realized I had double vision and uh, had a very worrying few weeks until I had all the brain scans, et cetera, to uh, say that I didn't have uh, anything too nasty, but I'd had a micro stroke in uh, one of the nerves of the eye uh, and my blood pressure had shot up. And from that point onwards, then I suddenly became like one of my patients and I was popping tablets and looking on the internet and seeing what I should do to look after myself because my dad had died age 57 of a heart attack. So I was a bit nervous. Um, and uh, it, in, in this, I realized that despite, you know, having discovered lots of obesity genes and worked, you know, in around this field, uh, everything I'd been taught about nutrition turned out you know, to be full of holes, really, and it didn't make sense. And so I just wrote uh, a book about this and about the gut microbes, um, which uh, were just starting to get interesting at that time. And to me, they suddenly brought the whole field together, why we'd got it all wrong, why, you know, we'd uh, misunderstood fats and uh, versus sugars and calories and uh and it was like we discovered this new organ in our bodies uh for the first time so that really got me excited and I, I basically taught myself about the microbiome started my lab working in this and we became the biggest uh, group in the uk doing this work and uh, haven't looked back since then because the technology has just kept improving so we can delve deeper and get even more data out of individuals who have, you know, terabytes of data inside them um, that we can interpret, again, using these same big data algorithm techniques to tease it all apart and suddenly make sense of, of nutrition in a way that just 
wasn't possible uh, 10 years ago. So to me, it's totally revolutionized our, our way of thinking about food. And once you know that, you know, these gut microbes have evolved with us for billions of years and they're there for a reason. And that is, you know, to act as another organ in our body. So, you know, that's, that's the, the big overview picture. And suddenly, once I started to understand how the diet interacted with the microbes, and I started writing for the public, trying to put a, a complex idea into some simple form, it all, it all became much clearer to me that uh, this is the obvious direction it, it should go. And this is where this is, you know, pretty much the future of health, because suddenly you can start seeing how if everything is chemicals, um, food we now know isn't just three things. It's not just, you know, carbs, protein and fat. It's uh, uh, 46,000 chemicals that have been uh, calculated. There's probably many more interacting with the uh, thousands of chemicals that our microbes produce, interacting with the, the chemicals that our, our own genes produce uh, into this huge network and it, that's what we, that's how you start to change your idea about what nutrition is. And it's not surprising we haven't got it right because we've just tried to dumb it down into, you know, a child's book uh, when actually it can only really be understood in a, with an AI viewpoint and a, an app that uh, transforms this for you into something meaningful. So it, it certainly changed my view of, of nutrition, both, um, starting to understand more about the microbiome and reading both the diet myth and uh, and spoon spoon fed as well. Because whilst I've been aware of the concept of personalised medicine, that there is or well, there shouldn't be a one size fits all approach to treating people for cancer or various other diseases. Actually, in the world of nutrition, it hadn't struck me that that is also something that we that, you know I should think about. Um, and so I think, as you say, it's it's highly likely that we have a future whereby um, people have a much more personalized um, nutritional regime or dietary pattern. And, and clearly, you know, the work of, of Zoe, who you've mentioned before, is, is geared um, towards that. What, what would you say is the number one myth about food, having done all the research in the books that you've written um, about food? Well, there's 23 myths in the latest book, Spoon Fed. So I've got to try and find one then that um, well, I'd say it's either, um, I think it's the myth of the importance of the calorie would probably be my top one. Um, I'm not a calorie denier. Uh, I, they do exist, but vastly overinflated in terms of uh, its importance, um, both in whether you can measure it uh, and how it applies to an individual and how its use on packets and uh, in terms of its use in diets. So across the board, uh, it's been hailed as this amazing tool, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's old. It's, it's nearly medieval in, in its history. And it just gives everyone the wrong impression that they can judge a food in this country or the US, certainly not in other countries, cultures, by just this magic number. But, you know, oh, that's okay. It's only got 563 calories. Um, the fact that, you know, that can be out by 20% uh, 
quite legally or um and if you go to a restaurant it can be out by two or three fold um doesn't seem to make any difference to anyone and from this idea of the calorie being this this sort of perfect measurement we've also got this idea that you know you you're able to eat 2500 calories a day and if you do eat 2400 you should be uh uh lose weight um and you know bit over you gain weight it's it's complete madness and it's never been shown that people who uh you know at just below their calorie requirement uh long term would lose weight because so so it's really that that is my number one bugbear but also just for this obsession of the public with with calories means they don't look at the quality of food they're just ignoring uh the ingredients and it, it's it's a brilliant con job by uh the food industry uh to to have done that to make us eat more and more ultra processed foods and yet the labels just make it look healthier and healthier every time because it's low calorie and suddenly it's okay let's it's gluten free and suddenly it's uh, low fat and suddenly um it's got extra added vitamins that we don't need is there a link between have you is there an empirical link based on the data that you've gathered um and also based on the um work you've done with the uk twins registry between gut health and covid outcomes at the moment the data is still pretty sketchy we know that the gut microbiome is crucial for the immune system and we know that that's without question so there's a definite link there now how much that is key in covid is more down to association and conjecture at the moment we know that a number of risk factors for covid are also risk factors for people on with poor nutrition so obesity type 2 diabetes deprivation uh, they all have that in common um we've just done a, a survey of uh, nearly 2 million people on the app where they all filled dietary questionnaires about what they were eating for the last year before covid and there's a clear correlation between poor quality diet and increased risk of infection even when you're just for obesity and age etc so we're still analyzing that data and i don't know how it relates relative to other factors but it's undoubtedly a factor and i think as we learn more about covid we learn more about the microbiome i think we'll see that the food is the uh, a key part in this that the idea that food is medicine um uh, is going to become increasingly important so the more we start thinking of this uh, you know as a as a as a chemical processing unit the closer we can get and it comes back to this whole idea that you know uh, just like covid um is unpredictable in who it's going to affect and in a way there isn't one guidance that fits all the same's true for nutrition so uh, you know our all our big studies on the predict program uh, are showing that everybody reacts differently uh when given identical food and i think this this individuality that is so important going forward that we realize that everything has to be personalized so 
we may end up with personalized vaccines, um, personalized uh, advice about quarantining in future, um, and personalized you know treatments for for long COVID, but also you know personalized nutrition advice uh, is definitely going to uh, be mainstream within five years, and all our studies with Zoe and the PREDICT study are uh, corroborating this, that um, the one lesson we take from COVID is how different everyone's reacted. And if you think of it just in empirical terms, it makes absolute sense that um, and we've done this now in 3,000 people. Uh, uh, the PREDICT studies, which we've published in uh, journals like Nature Medicine, are the biggest interventional studies uh, on nutrition ever done. And we're giving everybody identical foods and following them for two weeks uh, after a, a day in hospital with glucose monitors, trackers, measuring their blood fats, their inflammation levels, measuring what's going on in their stool. And no two people have the same response and even identical twins. I think we're realizing how complex food is, how complex our own bodies are. And to find the perfect fuel I think is going to take um, AI to sort out big data, uh, plus these new wearable technologies that are, you know, they blow people's minds when you start um, feeding back that information to people. And, you know, just in the last few weeks, Zoe have launched this product in the US and people there can buy it um, going you know, onto their website. And it, it's just combining what we know about the microbiome, what we know about your response to sugars, what we know about your response to fats, put it all together in a complex algorithm that just redefines what a healthy food is for you, not according to some uh, artificial government guideline that's sponsored by the food industry. It's telling you how you are likely to respond. So that's how I think people are going to you know, react in future is using their phone as their guide, not uh, some poster in the, the family doctor surgery. It's exciting times. So Tim, many thanks. We've covered some really, really interesting ground today and, and done exactly what I wanted to do, which was to talk, of course, about the virus, but also to talk about the power of data, the power of AI, the power of machine learning and the algorithms that you're building to actually allow the prediction of outcomes, both the sort of individual risk level, but also um, at, a, at a countrywide level as well, which is clearly important in the direction of, of very scarce resources. All that remains is for me to thank you, Tim, for joining us today uh, for what's been uh, a, a, a fascinating and really interesting conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Investec Focus Talks podcast. You've listened this far, so we trust you enjoyed it enough to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcast. And please do take a moment to raise us. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.